Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Real Live Talk. Really, really pumped that you guys are here to check out this conversation with my good friend, Dr. Janelle Royster. Dr. Royster is a licensed mental health counselor in Florida, as well as a licensed professional counselor in Virginia. She has a doctorate in industrial organizational psychology and is currently pursuing a doctorate in traumatology. She's considered a solution-focused trauma therapist, certified in 25 different therapeutic modalities. She sits on the board of directors for Project Vet Relief and as the treasurer for Virginia Clinical Counselors Alliance. And uh, Dr. Royster is currently working on a book, completing a book called Change Your Language, Change Your Life. She works with a myriad of nonprofit organizations to help those who put on a uniform to serve a higher purpose than themselves. And she owns a private practice called Semper Motis. LLC. Oh, this is so incredible. I just feel so privileged and honored again to have the opportunity to just be a part of um, another amazing conversation with Dr. Janelle Royster. So I'm going to bring Dr. R up on the screen and everybody join me in uh, welcoming her again to the podcast. Yes. <laughs> How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm so good. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for doing this. It's always such a privilege and an honor and just a pleasure to chat with you. And I always just feel like I'm like jumping into some deep waters when I'm talking to you and talking about stuff that's so far above my pay grade, but it's, it's so fun. And I'm so uh, just blessed to uh, know you, Dr. Royster. So thank you. Well, you're very sweet. I'm honored and blessed to be here. And I'm very happy that you asked me. But I don't know what we're talking about today. So yeah, so <laughs> that's a really good question. Well, well, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I have a couple things in mind. Uh, I was reflecting back on our last conversation when you were on with the rock star himself, Dr. Joseph Caps, and yeah. we talked about a bunch of stuff, um, just dealing in the world of um, mental health and uh, trauma and counseling and all that kind of stuff, and. A couple of things came up that I didn't get a chance to ask you last time that I was thinking about. But uh, first of all, um, you guys obviously survived the hurricane. Did you have any issues, problems, challenges in your area where you were? Just some of the fences came down. We didn't lose power or anything like that. So that was pretty, we're pretty lucky. Fort yeah. Myers got hit pretty hard. We got a lot of people yeah. down there that were struggling, but. Yeah, there's a couple of people that have businesses down there and they've asked people to reach out. So I'm kind of waiting on that, kind of keeping my schedule a little open in case they need me. Mm. And Fort Myers is just what, a couple of hours south of you? Correct. About four. Pretty much. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. That, yeah, that I'm by the me. Orlando area. Oh, you are? Yeah, nothing happens over here. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were more in the Tampa Bay area. I do. I work in a traumatic brain injury clinic there uh, a mm -hmm. couple days a week. So I, I travel a lot. So I go to Virginia. Um, I'm part of their uh, critical incident stress management team. And then I'm part of the critical incident stress management team in Florida <laughs> as well. And then I do the traumatic brain injury clinic, which is based in Tampa under the undersea oxygen clinic. So he, uh, he has comprised like yeah. nine doctors, right? Not, some are physicians, some are PhDs, some are just experts in their field, but he's created this whole person wellness program to actually cure traumatic brain injuries. So I'm, I'm part of that cog, you know, so it's pretty yeah. cool. I do the psychological evaluation. So I meet with the, whether it's a Green Beret, an NFL player, uh, a Ranger, we've worked with, um, you know, regular, I don't want to say regular veterans because they're all important, but yeah. some that, you know, some people that have retired from the military and we have them do an EEG, which is, it's basically like a swimmer's cap and then it has wires attached to it. And you do yeah. five minutes of your eyes closed, five minutes of your eyes open, and then an hour of just watching some things on the screen. And that way we can read the brain waves and figure out where the deficits are. And that can determine whether or not this person has a traumatic brain injury, what level of traumatic brain injury, right? What percentage? So I know the NFL players traumatic brain injury was like 99.67%. 
And when we did the final evaluation on him after all the brain training and the ice bath and the massage therapy and the physical therapy and the sleep stuff and the, the nutrition and the exercise, I mean, it was just amazing. Also wow. my protocols, you know, I do a lot of cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy and relationship stuff and just kind of navigating what does my life look like after PTSD, after a TBI, how do I start communicating with people in my life, you know? So I do a lot of that kind of therapy. And at the end, his, uh, when we did his last EEG, it was 1.67%. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So this is an individual who, and the only reason I'm using him as an example is because Dr. Dettori did it on a different podcast. So I know I can get away with it. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. So he, uh, he wasn't functioning real well, wasn't doing a lot productively. You know, he's a retired NFL player and now he actually is a head coach for a football team, which is pretty mm. amazing. Yep. So he's, he's high functioning. His relationship has never been better with his kids, with his wife. And he's maintaining those, those habits that he created during mm -hmm. the 28 day protocol. And yeah, whole person wellness is definitely the way to go. Man, this is one of the things that I, I love uh, so, so much about who you are, your approach and what you do is that um, in every in everything that we've discussed, you're you're always seems to me and I, I'm going to use a lot of just bad terminology, Dr. R. So just forgive me and correct me where you need to um, without reservation. But I you know, you're always after healing. You're after wholeness. You're not after some you know long drawn out program where somebody is consistently um and i'm not saying there might not be ongoing maintenance and stuff like that or check-ins and that kind of thing but mm -hmm. you're not trying to ultimately create a dependence on a system or something like that but you're really after the just the betterment of a person's life and mind and mindset and outlook and relationships and really just kind of the the holistic area of a person's life the whole of a person's life and really just after getting that person back to wholeness and back to life where they can they can then live because they've actually been the the problem has been corrected and that they, they can continue to move on did i was did you say that that's pretty accurate oh that's very accurate i call myself a solution focused trauma therapist and i mm. just wipe out the bs because at the end of the day there are people <laughs> There's 7 billion people on the planet. We have mm -hmm. to figure out what works for Duke, what works for Dr. Caps, what works for mm -hmm. Jonathan, what works for Greg, what works for whoever this individual who comes and asks for help. It's like, okay, what resonates with you? Are you the type of person that needs to be seen every week and you need those coping skills reinforced? Because that's okay. Sure. You know, so one one does not fit all. And the challenge I found when I graduated with my second master's is I couldn't comprehend why an individual who is in a therapeutic modality, what resonated with them in their master's program, because for me, it was rationally motivated behavioral therapy because I had mm. had so much trauma and my, my professor, the one who turned me on to REBT, he was a traumatologist. So he recognized my signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So he was like, this is the best modality for you. He didn't say for everyone. He said for you. And we expanded upon because there were other professors that we had been exposed to. Or was like, oh, I'm Gestalt therapy. I'm reality therapy. I'm solution focused breathe therapy. And it's like, that's great. But how much of the community in the license, in the state in which you reside, are you reaching to help these individuals mm. if you're just mm -hmm. a master of one? Now, mm -hmm. I find there are some people that are the masters of that, like Dr. Albert Ellis, right? He's rationally motivated behavioral therapy. And what he did when he was alive is he expanded upon uh, Beck's cognitive behavioral therapy. And he said, well, what about the absolutes? What about the finite language? What about the mm. masturbations? And it basically means that we speak to ourselves and to other people in the context of we have to do this or we'll be a bad person. Mm. We must do this or they will think badly of us. 
right? So it's all about everybody else's perception in these irrational beliefs. And I am actually writing a book called Change Your Language, Change Your Life. And the first hmm. sentence in it is, why am I so mean to me? Yes. And I had a two hour um, conversation with the colonel last night and she said, you could totally train on this for weeks. And I'm like, what? I just wrote a sentence, you know, but it's interesting <laughs> how communication changes our whole life. One sentence yes. from a loved one can determine whether or not we have a bad day. And it's like, wow. why do we put so much value on other people's words? It's because we don't have the foundation in and of ourselves. Mm. You know, somebody called yeah. me fat, ugly, stupid. That's their opinion. It's none of my business. Mm -hmm. So why do I find value in that? Why can that ruin my whole day? Well, wow. yeah, yeah. That, I have, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I know it's, it's so good. I love that. Why am I so mean to me? Uh, because that, that kind of the way that we internalize things that, as you said, that come our way, people mm -hmm. say things, people say something negative to you. Sometimes, you know, it's not even something, it might not even be like a derogatory statement, but we perceive that, oh, what did that person mean by that? And so we have this thing where we kind of, we internalize things that may or may not even be a, a real thing. It might not even be based in reality. But I think that we all on some level have that tendency to kind of just play stuff in our mind and just be negative. I think that if we were to, this is something I talk a lot about as a pastor uh, is like, you know, if you were to evaluate just like legitimately for a day, think about all the times where your thoughts just kind of skew negative and you were to evaluate that, I think you'd be really surprised at the end of the day. And I think that a lot of people would find, I mean, I know they've done studies on this and different things like that. And something about like, you know, 85% of the thoughts that we think every day are repetitive and like a very large percentage of those tend to be negative and all this kind of stuff. And I think that it's probably true for, um, you know, a lot of people that a lot of our thought processes just kind of go negative. And that self-talk, this is something that I tell people all the time. I don't know if you, uh, agree with me or not, but I, you know, I always say I, I, the most important conversation you're going to have today is the one you have with yourself. Absolutely. Because the way that you talk to yourself, the, you know, like, hi, Duke, hi, you know, but like, just like that kind of internal dialogue that goes on where we're kind of either reaffirming ourselves or tearing ourselves down internally. And, uh, you know, ultimately it, it outflows into, other th things as well. You know, the stuff that goes on on the inside of us is going to affect yeah, our, our day to day projection. lives, you know? So mm. if we're having a bad day, typically we come home from a long day at work and stuff happened and somebody says, well, you didn't take out the trash. That's a statement, but you right. respond to it in a, in a manner of like that, that just topped off your cup. Right. Hmm. So the interesting part about developmental psychology, and I don't mean to get into all these different therapeutic <laughs> modalities, but I'm just sharing what's interesting about neuro. I'm right, I'm right there with you, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Neuropathways. I'm picking up what you're laying down. So. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> the neuropathways are set in a way that I can give you 10 compliments right now. And yeah. in the middle of that, so I can make 11 statements. Mm. And the sixth statement could be construed as negative. That's the one you're going to hammer on. I'm locked on it, right? Yeah. So yeah. that is the way that our brain is set is we attach a negative emotion to that negative comment. And that's when it becomes a challenge. Mm. So from the ages of four to seven, we record all of our negative emotions. And from the ages of seven on, we, re we replay them over and over and over again. So the foundation is set. You'll never be good enough. You suck at that. You know, I was told I was terrible at tennis at yeah. the age of 14. Guess who's never played tennis? Hmm. Not since then, because yeah. I have I have an arm, right? Mm -hmm. So when I'd hit that ball, I'd hit the wall every time because I couldn't figure out how to carry the ball and let it bounce where it was supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and that was just one game, one time. But it was so, it was from such an influential person in my adolescence and i had so much value in their words that i decided that was fact wow and that's what we have to distinguish is like someone's opinion is not a factual statement unless there's evidence behind it hmm. 
You know, I, I did this thing when I was um, in high school where um, I so I got into running track when I was in when I was a sophomore. I changed schools. I started going to the public school in my town, grew up in private schools my whole life and then started going to the public school. And uh, they talked me into running track and I got I got into it. And my school was fantastic. Our track team was always in nationals and just, you know, so our workouts were really difficult. And uh, I it was weird because uh, I had this drive where I wanted to do I wanted to do well. I wanted to be like running with the top kids. So here's the thing. When I, I got into it late, you know, because I got in with kids that had been doing it for years and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but there were two groups. There was an A group and a B group. I started in the B group. They kicked me out of the B group literally on the first day of practice. They said, you're too fast for us to go in the A group. And so I'm in the A group, but I was like one of the slower ones in the A group. So what I started doing was I would work really, really hard in practice because I wanted to run with the fast kids. So the fast kids, they could kind of slack off and I would be killing myself and just keeping pace with them. So I did that for a little while. And I was improving very, very, very well. I was improving quickly. I would run, you know, when I had a chance to, to run the races that I was good at, I did well. But there was this thing in my mind, Dr. Art, where I, I kept telling myself, I just had this thought that was like, man, I'm not as good as these kids. I'm so far behind. I'm never going to catch up. That's what I did. So I was working hard when I was there, but I only did it for that one year. And then I you know, I, I convinced myself like, oh, I need to get an after school job and all this kind of stuff. And and I ended up coming away from it. It wasn't until years later that I reflected back on that. And I was like, you know what? The numbers that I was putting up after like three months of being on this team, like if I would have stuck with that, like I you know what I mean? Like I, I feel like there was I could have done so much more. And I could have, um, you know, really progressed. But I realized reflecting back on it that that was just something it wasn't even something that they told me. It right. was just something that for some reason it was in my own head mm -hmm. and I put it there and I played it out and I lived it and it eventually became my my reality. Absolutely. That could have would have should have as part of rationally motivated behavioral therapy, too, because those that that infinite should must have need. Mm. They're all finite language. And we do that a lot. We do a lot of regret. We do a lot of guilt and shame. We reflect on different things and say, well, if I did this differently, instead of just learning from it, taking that emotion out and going, man, ugh, if I would have thought that I could achieve this goal, then I would have been here. Okay, well, now that I'm here, I'm over here. So what can I do to achieve a different goal and bring myself mm. even further? You yeah. know, so we got limited beliefs yeah. and we got, we got a lot of things going on in that, that story that you just told. Right. Mm. Yeah. I remember being in sixth grade and I remember we had to take, and they were breaking up the class into three different groups. So you had the remedial, the, the average, and then the advanced. And everybody is competitive. They all wanted to be in the advanced. I didn't do so hot in math in sixth grade. Knew my timetables and stuff. I just, you know, didn't understand how you multiply words or formulas and, you know, just didn't make any sense to me. Math so is I was always in my worst part of math. Subject. And yeah. I was bullied and shunned for that. Wow. Which is, you know, quite interesting. But yeah. I didn't hold on to that. I said, well, if math isn't my thing, I'm going to go over here. And mm. lo and behold, I did. <laughs> Love it. It's probably Love why it. I'm, not, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD. Is for the simple fact is math is not my favorite subject. But I will mm. tell you that I did, I did below average in algebra, geometry, I think algebra two in high school. I did not do well. Mm. But when I did my... Uh, associates and my bachelor's, of course, you have to take math courses. And I was, I had a female professor and she taught differently. So I think part of it is learning what your learning style is instead of tearing yourself apart because you're not doing what everyone else is doing. Come on. Yeah. And how important do you think it is for people in general, like for, for everyone to kind of have an idea of the way that their mind or, you know, their brain works, the way that they process things. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about that. Like, 
Um, you know, if I don't if I don't recognize that I have the tendency to do that to myself, to tear myself down, I'll just keep doing it. Right. So how do you kind of like become aware of those things? And then how important, you know, overall to your just your overall happiness or mental, you know, health and stability? How important do you think that that is to kind of recognize the way that your own brain works, the way that you process things? Well, there's a rap song and in the middle of it just popped in my head is check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> and right, I think having right. somebody in your life that has done the work who can step up and, you know, mm -hmm. have that conversation with you and be like, man, you yeah. really are struggling with your viewpoint on you. Mm. So making someone aware of that, I think is pretty profound. I think also recognizing that, you don't have to believe what everybody else believes about you. Mm, come on. It's a choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything is a choice. I mean, the only choice you really, I mean, you can even choose not to pay taxes. <laughs> you get in trouble and there's For a little while, <laughs> yeah. but the only thing we really don't have a choice in is whether we live or die because that's out of our control. Mm. Right. Yeah. It is not in our timing. And the other mm -hmm. thing is, there's a lot of people who pray and they're diligent and they get so frustrated. Why aren't things happening for me? You know, I, I'm, I put all this work in this, in this one area and I'm, it's just not going, it's just not picking up. It's just not launching. And it's like, dude, it's in his timing. There's nothing you can mm -hmm. do about it. Come on. You have to be patient. You have to be diligent because it will come to you when you're ready to receive. I talk about this all the time with my clients because they get so frustrated because they're so impatient. We live in a world of instant gratification mm -hmm. and then they feel it's immediate rejection. That's not necessarily the case. It's in God's right. time. Wow. It's not about you. Wow. Because the world also has to be ready to receive what you're doing. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that ask me, you know, I have five clinicians in my private practice and they ask me, they're like, oh, well, we can do this and we can do that. And okay. Yes, we can. But what kind of clients are you looking for? Let's get this targeted mm -hmm. audience. Because if you're really not certified in eating disorders, like why would we advertise to them? Or you're mm -hmm. not certified in substance abuse. We're not going to advertise to them. So you have to make everything make sense. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I remember uh, when Jonathan Galui was on the podcast, one of the things that we talked about was, uh, was, was that is like at the end of the day, it's like, what does, what does God say about you? You know, what does, what does, the, what does the word of God declare about who you are? What does God think about you? Because he's the one that made you. He's the one that created you. So ultimately, if other people are bullying you, they're tearing you down, they're saying things, they're doing things, even if they're not, but you're perceiving it in a negative way, mm -hmm. and we're feeding off of all that kind of stuff, then what we're going to end up doing is producing negative stuff out of our lives as a result. And so it's like on a, on a very basic level, it's like, okay, well, ultimately, um, who I am, you know, is not defined or determined by what you say or what you think about me. And as long as I live my life that way, I'm always going to be coming up short to an extent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always going to be kind of like the hamster wheel sort of a thing. But Absolutely. if I can live my life recognizing that I am, you know, I am loved, I am accepted, I am significant. I, you know, I have a, in, an identity that's firm and established because of the one that created me, the way that he thinks about me and the way that he you know, loves me is ultimately if I can live based on based on that, then, you know, I can not that things that people say to me aren't going to hurt in the moment, you know, but I don't have to just like internalize them and then, you know, accept them as my my reality, you know. But the thing is, is you have to keep in you have to keep in, in context. Is it about you at all? Is it their issues that they're projecting on you so that they mm. get the attention that they need? So empathy. Well, yeah. I mean, you have class clowns and you have people who are loud mm -hmm. and obnoxious and they just, they, they target one individual who they perceive as maybe less than or not doing what everybody else is doing or doesn't yeah. communicate the way that they do. So they project their stuff on this other person and this other person thinks that their words have value and they go mm -hmm. home. I mean, 
honestly, suicide is, is the youth's number one cause of death right now. Yeah. And that honestly scares the snot out of me. Yeah. Because what it means is those youth are taking the value of others' opinions above all else. So mm. what kind of foundational things can we put in place? You know, there's a, there's some developmental psychologists in, in Texas who are doing these lovely little studies on elementary school kids and they're teaching them emotional regulation. Now, how amazing is it going to be when they get into high school? How much bullying will there be? Hmm. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like how yeah. can we mm -hmm. navigate this so everyone yeah. can have that whole person outlook and is like, well, if someone were to do this to me, how would I feel? Before yeah. I speak, you know, because the tongue is pretty forceful and it it's very harmful. Yeah. But it can also be very helpful and you can change someone's life by saying that you care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there was something that I mentioned on a on a podcast a, a while back, um, but uh, it was an interview that not even an interview, just a clip that I saw online. And the, the a question was asked to somebody who's an expert in you know the field of content creation and stuff like that they asked the question how do i protect my nine-year-old daughter online from all the stuff you know i think she was referring to everything the bullying that can happen you know just the social pressure potential predators out there like all that kind of stuff like all how do i protect my nine-year-old daughter that you get yeah. on google i mean you type in a wrong word right whoa everything right. comes up right and so, and so his response, it was very, very, very simple. And I thought it was just very real, very profound. He just says, uh, you build her self-esteem. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, cause if you, if she's, if she's strong in here, if she's, if she's just, if she's a strong person, then what's going to happen is now she's still a nine-year-old kid and you got to, you know, be careful. But, but, you know, if you're building yourself up and you're, developing a strong heart you're developing you know a courageous heart you're developing a heart that you know where you know who you are mm -hmm. then what happens is you're not going to be so quick to internalize those things that come your way and you're not going to be so quick to you know fall into somebody else's trap because you know like that's not consistent with my value system correct yeah yeah. So I just thought that that was really huge, especially for kids. And so, yeah, as you said, like if we can teach our kids, which is probably more important today than ever with, again, as you mentioned, all the stuff that they're exposed to from a young age or potentially exposed to, um, if, you know, well, if we can help to build them from that the non-binary, all of these different <clears throat> things. And it's like, Ooh, that sounds really good, but I don't know really what it is, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. that, I find that very interesting too, because the parents are outraged by the individuals receiving this information, but at the same time, they let their kid play online for four hours. Right. You know, so that's right. the challenge for me, but I just, my thing is I want to intentionally communicate positively mm -hmm. and speak words into existence that make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. From from a uh, I don't know from an, an expert standpoint, I was going to say a cognitive behavioral standpoint. I'm not sure if that's even the right terminology or not. No, but you're, wh it's, what? It's just a different yeah. therapeutic modality because I'm trained in so many. When you put it in the right frame, I can answer it that way. Okay. Because you got existential, you got gestalt, you got like hundred of them. So yeah, just let me know which one you want me to answer and which way, and I'm good. <laughs> Well, I was just, I was just, I was just gonna, you know, just kind of out of curiosity, ask like, what do you think um, is kind of a healthy way? I know this is not maybe this is definitely not the area that I thought we were gonna talk about, but but like just because we're kind of on the on the subject, um, what do you think is sort of a healthy way to navigate, um, you know, with our with our kids? I mean, I think adults need it too, but I mean, you know, kind of navigate with our kids, as you said. From the age of the four to seven, there's all this um, develop. What, what was the terminology that you use? All this development. I said so they they're learning, they're recording. recording. So they're recording yeah. like your child is going to record what you and your wife, your emotions. So if you're gotcha. explosively angry a lot, that that child oh. is going to retain that. And when, when there is an event yeah. that resembles something that triggered you, 
it's going to trigger the child. Mm. So they mimic, right? Yeah. And that's how they identify which emotion is which. Because at four years old, I can't sit here and go, anger is, sadness (laughs) is, like they don't get it. Anger is a blocked wish, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's actually fear turned outward, but yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, from yeah. a cognitive behavioral standpoint, I, I believe that education and awareness is first, but communication is right up there with it. So how mm, you communicate okay. with the individual, because you know, well, you don't want to make them a narcissist either. And they throw that term around very loosely. So uh-huh. everyone, and I can honestly say this, everyone has narcissistic tendencies. They ah, okay. can be. It doesn't mean they have them. doesn't mean they embody them. I've had to correct myself on this a couple of times because tendencies are possibilities, right? Mm, I could gotcha. be narcissistic in this venue. I could be narcissistic this way. But the personality disorder is a whole different beast. Hmm. Okay. So gotcha. that's personality disorders. They're very similar and they all have about three symptoms or behavioral patterns or traits, personality traits that are along the same. So histrionic, bipolar, antisocial, um, narcissistic. I mean, you can name them all off and Mm -hmm. three out of the nine criteria could be met just because they all fit. But then you have to do that deep dive and really figure out how dysfunctional they are with regard to that personality disorder. So people are like, Oh, I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. Are you? Mm. Right. Well, I dive deep and I'm like, okay, where were you before any of this happened? Because typically there was a traumatic event or a serious dysfunction that occurred to separate that union. Okay. So you got to pull out the ingrown hair and find out what the source is. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, man. You know, the reason the reason I said um, uh, I just kind of blurted out uh, the word um, empathy earlier is that I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And I feel like it's one of the things that can kind of uh, see we think about this, like help us kind of process things that so like when when somebody else comes at you you know, with something and maybe they're accusing you of something or maybe they're, you know, just being over. Maybe they are just being, you know, a jerk. Maybe they're tearing you down. Maybe they're bullying. Maybe they're, you know, doing something like that. Right. Um, just just for me um, to kind of ha- have the mindset where I- I'm kind of thinking like, OK, if this person is coming at me like this, there's a good chance that this person has some messed up stuff going on in their life. And this isn't even really about me at all. And it's a good chance that it's just, you know, they they're lacking something. They're missing something. Maybe they've got, you know, some kind of, you know, they've had some traumatic experiences. They've had some challenges. They've had some things like that. And so um, to kind of like, I don't remember to do it all the time, but I, you know, I think that it's when you do remember that, I feel like that's, that's a helpful thing to just be like, um, hold on this stuff that this person's throwing at me. It's probably coming from, uh, it's probably coming from a place of hurt or a place of pain or, right. or something like that, where it's not even necessarily about me. And so why should I internalize this and accept it like that? You know? So sympathy and empathy are thrown around a lot, but you're talking about perspective. So you're basically mm. gaining sympathy basically involves understanding from your own perspective. Okay. So mm. I feel sympathy because, you know, if a friend called me and is like, my dad passed away, I'd be like, Oh, I have sympathy for you because that's my, my perspective is that my dad died during COVID, you know? So I, I can sympathize. Right. Yeah. And then empathy involves putting yourself in the other person's shoes and understanding why they may have these particular feelings. So that's Mm. what you're talking about. Yeah. You are talking about your perspective, but you're not emotionally attached So you have Mm. empathy for the person because you're stepping in. That's, that's a challenge with anybody in the psychology profession is because it's very challenging for us to get angry with people because we know why they do what they do. Right. So it's harder for us. And we probably stay in relationships way too long (laughs) because we, we have empathy for that under individual because we understand the psychology behind their behaviors 
And so we kind of draw things out a little bit more than we should, or we get into relationships we shouldn't be in. Wow. Never thought about that. So you give them the benefit of the doubt and Always. then you maybe take on things that you shouldn't because you're understanding their perspective maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> a little bit too much. Yes. Uh, that's Yeah. And I mean, that, yeah. that works for people. You know, I, I was in uh, community mental health and I was a clinical supervisor and I was in an office that was just extremely toxic and I stayed mm -hmm. for too long. Because I continue to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm like, well, she's adjusting because she was in this position before. And now she's kind of got demoted. And she's now in this position. And she has to overcompensate. Mm. And I kind of gave her so much grace that it cost me. Gotcha. Little pieces yeah. of me were being chipped away throughout that work situation. So I, hmm. I decided that I was not going to, I set boundaries. I decided I was not going to do that again. The next community health position I, I obtained was amazing. I worked there for five years. Absolutely loved it. The owner was an absolute wonderful superstar. He helped me with so much. I had more learning and clinical supervision from him than anyone all together. And he wasn't mm. even my licensed clinical supervisor. He just owned the company. So he had pretty amazing intel on how to run a business as a licensed professional because they mm. don't teach us that. They teach us the, the counseling. They teach us, you know, the reflective listening and the open question, open-ended questions. And they teach us all this other yeah. stuff. They don't teach us anything about how to run a business. So most people, when they get their independent licensure after residency or after internship, because it's different labels in different states, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, LCSW is great nationwide, but for us licensed mental health counselors, licensed clinical professional counselors, licensed professional counselors, we all have these different labels, but it's the same job. So when we pass that test and we turn in all our hours and we get that independent license, we're like, ooh, I'm going to run my own company. Yeah, nobody teaches us that. <laughs> so then well, we have to find other licensed professional counselors who have their own successful private practice, who have different offices in different areas, and that are teaching us this so that mm -hmm. we can be successful because we're not, we don't go to business school. Gotcha. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. don't know how to take insurance. We don't know what, oh, we're supposed to take copay. Nobody told us. You know, so that's mm. the challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about um, something else um, kind of related to what we're talking about. But I didn't do it. Um, yeah, you didn't do it. <laughs> I heard. I heard. I heard you did it. Um, <laughs> um, worry and anxiety. So from Ooh. a from a again, cognitive behavioral or just like, a, you know, just with, yeah, from, from an expert standpoint um, in helping, you know, people walk through mental health, you know, challenges and things like that. Like um, how, what, how do you, I'm curious about like, how do you see, or how do you even define um, worry? Well, there's a lovely little meme on Facebook and it says worries like a rocking chair doesn't go anywhere. Mm, okay. Anxiety can yeah, escalate. Yeah, yeah. So anxiety is the inability to control a situation. And what happens in our brain, yes. yes. What happens in our brain is we have these thoughts and they it reminds me, you remember the Serta commercials with the little sheep just to bounce it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Before you go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Those are your thoughts. Right? right. And sometimes they have emotions attached to them. Well, with anxiety, when we have a thought. And it gets stuck. And then we go down mm. this lovely little rabbit hole. But if we do little quick things to disconnect, like hold our breath for three seconds. But emotions are only 90 seconds long. If you ride the wave and don't go down the rabbit hole and just focus on that one thought, you can huh. let it go. Huh. But if you're trying to manipulate a situation or a thought, or trying yes. to challenge something yeah. to control it in the manner in which you want it controlled, you have anxiety. Wow. And then you create that anxious habit. Mm -hmm. So 
So holding your breath, breathing through it. Because I like to tell, tell people who struggle with anxiety and there's this thought that just won't get out of their head. And then they go down this rabbit hole and it causes them all kinds of physical reaction, right? Because mm. the brain is on overdrive. And then there's people that just, they have racing thoughts and they think too fast, too much, right? So if you mm. hold your breath for three to 10 seconds, typically your brain will go, oh, I got to breathe. And then right. you continue to do that. So the first day, what I say is the first day you hold your breath after you have these anxious thoughts, you feel like you're holding your breath all, all day. But your brain <laughs> yeah. is a brilliant mechanism, right? It's the, the world's best computer ever invented. So that it learns. When you yeah. wake up the next day and you have more racing thoughts that cause you to have anxiety, because what it does is it triggers that lovely vagus nerve. So then now you're feeling anxiety in your body and your chest gets tight, your stomach turns, mm. you know, all of that. And you're trying to navigate some sort of control and you don't feel like yeah. you have any, which causes more anxiety. So the second day you hold your breath half the time and mm. the third day, a third less. And after that, pretty soon, you're not holding your breath anymore because your brain goes, if she thinks this thought, she's going to make me hold my breath. Then I'm not going to have this thought in my frontal lobe, you know, my frontal wow. lobe, right? Wow. My consciousness won't be thinking of this thought. So you're oh, by holding your breath, you're training your brain to not have those habits, to disconnect those habits. And some people mm. don't like to hold their breath because they got CPE. What is it? C COPD or they have breathing issues, right? Whatever. Breathe through it. In two, three, out two, three. In two, three, out two, three. One, it relaxes the mind. Two, it brings your brain into a focus of something that is required. So these thoughts, these racing thoughts mm. and these rabbit holes, they're optional. Yeah. That's so good. Oh, that's so good. Um, man, no, because I well, first <laughs> I think it's funny that I I I'm uh yeah everybody I'm actually uh, when I asked you for your expert opinion you started talking about a rocking chair I was like yeah. yes <laughs> you're just <laughs> you're helping me out here yeah uh, no it's so like good a rocking chair you just rock all yeah. day you don't go anywhere mm -hmm. like what is the benefit there. of me worrying about this specific situation you know right. especially yeah. in relationships this is what I find most often is that women have a tendency to fall in love with potential. And then they're extremely disappointed when this mm. person doesn't reach that potential. Like, right. who are you to put that on them? Wow. And I kind of put it back on, you know, them. I mean, men do it too. It's like, yeah. well, I thought she was this and I, she said she was that, but her actions don't show, you know? So that's, sure. that's yeah, a whole nother podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk yeah, about yeah. relationships all day. Yeah, we should do that. We we should next time you come back if we can remember sure. um be I'd love to talk about that like relationships communication that kind of thing. Uh, well, we're social. I mean, that is how we live and breathe, right? I mean, I know that there's some introverts out there is like, mm -hmm. I don't need anybody and I people right. all day and then I go home. I'm half and half. So what's interesting to me is when I was in high school, I was like a 98% extrovert. All of a sudden, I become a licensed mental health counselor, and I'm 52% extrovert, 48% introvert. Because wow. when I go to like some of these nonprofit organization functions, like I can't wait to get back to my hotel room. And I wow. love everyone yeah. that I spend yeah. time with. I mean, don't misunderstand. I love the connection. I love networking. I love all that. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I have to wind down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just, uh, from a practical standpoint, um, uh, when you were talking about the kind of like the first day when you're trying to essentially retrain the way that you think, right? So when you're getting into, you recognize like, okay, I'm getting anxious or, you know, these thoughts are coming, uh, you know, and I can just kind of sit there and I can, to use a biblical term, I can meditate yeah. on those negative thoughts and I can keep replaying this thing. I can replay this scenario over so and over again choices. in my mind. Look at that. Yeah. And it's like it's my, my way to realize that you're aware it's a, it's very empowering to go, well, th this is not where I want to be today. 
and you start yeah. using those coping skills. Yeah. So what was your question? Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, yeah. So what I was going to ask was, so when you are uh, kind of taking that pause and you're, you know, holding your breath and just letting that time, are you, are you trying to think about something like what's going on in your head while you're doing that? Or are you, you just literally trying to disconnect from the thought? Well, it's, have you ever seen the movie for the love of the game with Kevin Costner? I have not. I should. So it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, and it's about baseball, it's like of course, because it's yeah. Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams, yeah. you know, Bulls, <laughs> Bull Durham. Like he's a, he's a baseball guy, right? I He did some football movies too. But anyway, he's just a good dude. But there is a part on there where he is a pitcher and he's pitching the perfect game or he's working up toward pitching the perfect game. I don't want to give it away. It's a really good movie. <laughs> but he, right before, you know, the catcher, he's thrown back and forth and, and he gets he gets the ball and the batter comes up to the plate and he's about ready to throw and he leans forward and he says, clear the mechanism. Mm. And you see the camera like zooms in on the plate, on the pitcher, on, I mean, not, yeah, on the, on the batter and on the catcher and it zooms in and he says, clear the mechanism and the whole crowd goes silent. Mm. And I think that's what happens when we hold our breath, when we become anxious is because you can't do anything. Your conscious is only 5% of your brain. Everything working back here is 95%. Yeah. Moving yeah. our hands, moving our lips, speaking, all of that is our subconscious. So 5% of our brain is what causes us to become overwhelmed. Doesn't really make sense, right? Wow. Wow. So when we hold our breath, it's a conscious decision to clear the mechanism. Hmm. Wow. Now the thought may come back, you hold your breath again, sure. and you're training your brain. Your yeah. brain is learning a new trick. And then is that where the subconscious part of the mind will eventually take over to where once it becomes kind of like learned behavior? Because I think what happens is if if I can learn that behavior of a thought hits my head and I automatically start to entertain it and I become worried and I become anxious. So I'm going down that rabbit trail. I'm spinning my wheels. I'm in the rocking chair. I'm not going anywhere. I can think about something all day long. And what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm trying to make an effort. You, you mentioned it being um, like an, un, an out of control, you know, thing. And so I I'm kind of making an effort in my mind to try to become in control of something that's ultimately out of my control, right? Correct. Like I'm, I'm spinning my You're wheels, trying, trying to manipulate to... ways to control a situation that you have no control over. And that's why you can't figure it out. Right. And that's so... where from a, if I can throw something <laughs> just like, like from a spiritual standpoint in here, it's where, you know, I, I think that it becomes almost like this. I think it becomes almost like a pride thing. Mm -hmm. where I, it's like, I'm used to doing this. And for me to actually let go of these worry, anxious thoughts, in a sense, I actually kind of have to die to myself because I'm giving up control of yes. something. And I feel like one of the most intoxicating things there is, is like the feeling that you're in control. It's like this thing. And even if it's like a sick kind of, uh, you know, twisted way of doing it, like it's all that I know how to do in this circumstance because I've learned it. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to maintain well, that control. Yeah, it's exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, when you wake up first thing in the morning, you go to the bathroom. Second thing you do is grab a cup of coffee. Third thing you do is, you know, whatever. But we have these rituals, these habits that we've created. And when you have a thought that passes through your mind every single day and you're trying to manipulate it, navigate it, make it into something that makes sense that you don't mm. have all the education on and you're not willing to do the research on, or you can't navigate it because you're expecting someone else in your life to change. And that's what's causing gotcha. you anxiety. So there's mm -hmm. many different avenues you can go. But essentially what the brain does, and to get back to your question, we obtain 2 million megabytes of data per day through their ears, nose, mouth. 2 million. 2 million megabytes of data. That's how <laughs> awesome our brain what? is, right? So 2 okay. million megabytes of data come into our brain. And that's why one sleep is extremely important because when you hit rapid wow. eye movement, when you hit REM, 
even though it could be an hour and a half to two hours in your eight hours of sleep, it processes all that data. Whoa. Okay. So anything okay. you learn during that day, like, you know, like you hear law students, well, I crammed for the test and then I bombed the test. How much sleep did you get? Did you give REM an opportunity to process and file this information uh, in the appropriate okay. areas so that you can pull it up as needed? No. Wow. So when you're holding your breath the first day and you feel like you're holding your breath all day long, and then you hit REM, your, your brain learned. So the second day, you only do it half as much. And the third day, you only do it a third as much. And then pretty soon, you're not holding your breath at all because you let go of all those negative habits. Whoa, this is unreal what you're telling me. I can't believe I'm just hearing this for the first time. Like this, this sounds like something they should teach you very. I mean, I, of course, they always talk about, you know, everyone always talks about you need to get good sleep. Like I've always heard, you know, you want to, you know, if you're cramming for an exam, you want to stop and you want to make sure you get a good night's sleep. But I've never heard like the scientific explanation behind it of going through where your mind actually gets into that state and you have to allow time, right? Because REM doesn't typically happen within the first 30 minutes that you fall asleep, right? Right. Is there a way to isolate that? <laughs> where you could like, if you could, if you could lock in, I'm going to get REM. Could you, could we survive off of three hours of sleep? If yes. it was just, if it was yeah, all but just you'll only there? Hit 30 minutes of REM. So I have what's right. called yeah. an aura ring. <clears throat> and what it does is it navigates all my goodies. So it's pretty cool. So it's O-U-R-A and mm -hmm. it's a ring that has all kinds of technological advances and it also has an app, right? So it what? tells us what our readiness is, what our sleep is, what our activity is, what we need to do. It gives you little good goodies, little nuggets on how to navigate things like go to sleep between this time and this time. This is your optimal time. And it like studies you and conforms you so that you get the best quality sleep or the most activity like well you're the wow. most upbeat in the afternoon so go take your walk then you know so it's pretty cool technology is amazing that's crazy that's so cool it's, you know, no i mean this ring, is and it's got a little computer chip in it it's pretty phenomenal but oh, yes you amazing. can navigate that <laughs> typically three i would say minimum of four hours of sleep get you about 30 minutes of REM. but i will tell you that i learned this from a lot a lot of people that are way smarter than I am about it. You know, they've mm -hmm. studied all the how sleep works and, you know, how, how the brain works and processes things and, you know, neuropsychologists and people that have studied this stuff for years. I'm just kind of sharing information that I've obtained from them. Obviously I've hit REM cause I can pull it up. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Like, so yes. when you, yeah, the thing is, is a lot of people are like, well, I got to cram for this and I do much better if I procrastinate. And it's like, I appreciate that. But what information mm -hmm. will you retain after you take this test? Right. Nothing. It's like, dude, I'm, I'm wiped. I'm all done. Well, of course you are. I was so good at that, um, at cramming for an <laughs> exam not. and getting an A. Like I was so good at that, but then, yeah, it's like, what's the point? Like, what do you remember? Like you, I was a terrible I mean, test taker. And then I realized that I had to figure out how to take the test. Mm -hmm. So we have two different tests that we take as counselors. One's the national counseling exam. And then the other one's the national clinical mental health counseling exam. And that one's like the second level, right? Mm -hmm. And that one, I, I took quite a few times and I thought I was just a bad test taker. And then I found a program that teaches you how to take the dang thing because yeah. it's not A, B, C, or D. Right. It's like, how many minutes of this? How many? It's like, what? I don't even know mm -hmm. how to take this thing. So if you study to, to learn how to take the test and then you study the material, you do a whole lot better job on the test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My Body, biggest problem right? in college was uh, waking up on time to go and take the test. Oh, I loved my classes in college because I it actually, was what I wanted to study. Oh, yeah. So that was the challenge I, for me, you know, having those standardized classes. Like, I have never, I can honestly tell you that in my 40-some years of life, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but uh, in my 40-some years of life, I have yet to uh -huh. use any geometry. Right, right. That you like know none of. any algebra none 
Not do you ever nothing. play pool? Do what? Do you ever play pool? Um, There's some geometry there. Not that you're thinking. <laughs> no. I I have yes I I you know I've played pool in my lifetime but I hit the ball where I think it should go it's right like, not you don't yeah I don't you're calculate not, uh, anything it enough it's like to, boom to, to oh there goes a cute ball you know yeah. I'm that girl I told you I have an arm so you know delicate activities are not my favorite axe throwing volleyball you know things like that. axe throwing <laughs> I love axe throwing. And race car driving, right? <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about that before we run out oh. of time. So you used to drive race cars, right? Yes. So on like what? Like what? Can I hear a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, so I started when I was uh, in the race. Uh, my parents loved it. So my mom and my stepdad kind of connected with some people uh, who owned a nonprofit. Shocking, right? Been in nonprofits my whole life. And um, my older sisters and I used to sit on a blanket and we used to have our hair and pigtails and they were different colors. So my mom knew who we were, but um, we, we raced sand, we raced mud, we raced mm. obstacle, we raced quarter mile, I raced sprints. So I got really good, but then my parents, I, I had a sponsor and uh, my parents got divorced. So at the end of the day, not to quote, cold trickle, but I lost my ride because mm. they really didn't want okay. to decide between the mom and the dad and one, the funding. It's very expensive to race. Right. But, um, I think the, the, my favorite vehicle was probably the center seater, which was, uh, it was a 48, 1948 fiberglass body and it had a roll cage and, you know, it was wow. long in the front sand tires, big sand tires on the back. And it was a 327 Chevy blown to a 331 and it was alcohol fuel injected. Wow. And I drove a Jeep and a pickup truck, like just all kinds wow. of things. Um, there was one time I remember I was 15 and we did this thing called a rodeo. And I basically, mm -hmm. my stepdad had a pie plate full of water in his lap and I had to race blindfolded. What? In a 1976 seven inch lift kit pickup truck. It was a short bed, step side, like it was a hot mess of a truck and I had to race it backwards through an obstacle course and have the most water in the pipe plate. So his, his whole, his strategy, right? He's like, your way is left. My way is right. So when I say my way, you turn the wheel to the right. When I say your way, you turn your wheel to the left. Yeah. So I won. He had this much water left. <laughs> But nobody, I mean, everybody else, they were so, they get out and their pants were soaked and it, it was great. Wow. I met the Oak Ridge boys. I met oh, that's um, crazy. just so many different Alabama, like um, the guy who sings Turn the Page, Bob Seeger. You know, I met so many people because this nonprofit would bring in these bands and it, it was pretty cool. I, that's yeah, so cool. It was a good part of my childhood. So you were like, you were legit then. So, yeah, I could have been Danica Patrick. I'd have kicked her butt. Come on, I'll up there on the podium. Gives me a car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's a hard thing to get right when you're going in reverse and then like turning the right way. Like, uh, so that's a yeah, yeah. He had a whole strategy. A he was he was pretty good dude. But uh, yeah. So my way and your way won the race. Oh, that's so cool. I love it. Plus, I was blindfolded. <clears throat> Yeah, I forgot about that part. I, was <laughs> I just like totally glossed over the, the part that you were blindfolded. So he would just give you the, he would give you all the commands uh, as far as, and you had to, man, like how fast were you going? About three miles an hour, I think, maybe five, if that. Yeah. Barely yeah, so anything. It, just it wasn't like a timed thing. Learning it how to, like a right. Robin or a bridge. I didn't have to have the favorite, I didn't have to have the fastest time. I just had to complete the course and he had to have water. I have on. some water left. Yeah. Right. I want yeah. four BF Goodrich tires though. So I didn't do too shabby. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, so um, I think we're uh, pretty much getting to, we've got to wrap this up, right? I think you've got, got some, somewhere to be. I right? love talking to you. I but, think this is fun. I'm glad I'm. No, I really enjoy it every time. And uh, we'll definitely do it again. I would love to um, 
talk about yeah what we said love to get on here and talk some more about like the relationships communication look i had some questions on here for you that were in my mind i didn't get to any of them except for the race car one that was the only one that, well, <laughs> that i eventually got around fire to. away we got five minutes Dude. What you oh got? man i don't well see this is involved this is involved because one <laughs> of the big things i wanted to know about um was the last time you were on the podcast i didn't get a chance to ask you but it came up when you were talking about um kind of how you got started and you mentioned that you did an internship with human trafficking survivors i did. going to like kind of a heavy place right at the end of the podcast here but um but yeah so i was just i was just curious i mean that's kind of like right at the beginning of what you're doing in your career right you're like thrown into the into the deep end and um you With know one the of the things i was very curious yeah. about yeah yeah and i mean that's that's an area where it's just it's it's so close to my heart and um just curious about you know getting into that world uh what was you know just something we probably only have time for maybe one thing but what was something that uh, that came out of that that you learned from having that experience that maybe you know you just weren't aware of or um that you Boundaries. know you kind of became aware by working with that community okay i could wow. not be captain save a person so that wow. was very challenging for me because these are individuals who are very much in a situation that they feel they can't get out of and so building that person back up but having my own boundaries and realizing my life is not their life my life is not their experience mm. So recognizing and focusing on the skills that I could give them to empower them to move forward in their life and own their story. Wow. This is what happened to you. This is not who you are. Come on. That was a huge um, educational piece that I received. Hmm. Because That's people beautiful. go through absolutely horrific circumstances. But it doesn't tell me you know, that's not who you are. Who are mm -hmm. you? We want to get to that person in the core so that this never happens again. Well, so that was the biggest takeaway for me that I found with working with those individuals. And I call them survivors, not victims, because mm -hmm. they don't like to be called victims. Yeah. See, that was quick. We got two more minutes. What's that? No, nah, it's good. Um, look, I really just I want to I want to tell you how uh, grateful I am just for you and for your time. Uh, you know, people might not get it from this interview because you're so you're so down to earth. Um, but uh, you're such a you're just such a rock star. And I mean, what you're doing, like we've like talked about we've talked about several things. But uh, I mean, some of the projects and different things that you are involved in. Mm -hmm. um it's just you're doing such groundbreaking stuff and your heart again is to to help people to be free and to stay free and to walk well, I in know freedom to walk in like wholeness to suffer so yeah. i myself have had you know and, and i'm sure you want me to tell my story and maybe we'll do that initially we will in the beginning of the next one but uh <laughs> yeah, i um start with i know what it's like to suffer i know what it feels like to be helpless i know what it feels like to be depressed mm. i know what it feels like to be on a myriad of medications I know what it feels like to go through the VA and not get the results you're looking for. I'm not saying they're not helpful, but to some people, they feel like it's not enough, right? So for me, I, I opened a private practice. I figured it out. I have a bunch of veterans and first responders that are licensed counselors under me. We treat civilians, but we also, we've walked the path of those who put on a uniform. So mm -hmm. we, we have a different right. level, right? And- yes. We kind of understand their walk, you know, where you have combat stress for military veterans and active duty, but then you have compound stress for first responders. It's very different and it needs to be handled differently. And there are some clinicians that may be like, I want to work with first responders. Okay. What are you doing to make that happen? Mm. You know, like I said, I talked to a colonel yeah. last night and she's like, they're not walking the walk. They're talking, trying to get into an area because they find it fascinating, not because they'll be helpful. And I was like, yeah. wow, that was profound. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to connect you to her because she's amazing. Please, please. That's the other thing is uh, you, you're just you're so you, you've been so generous with your time today um, and also just just 
in general. And I mean, you've connected me to so many people and given me an opportunity to just kind of get a glimpse into a world that I would buy, you know, other, otherwise not really have an opportunity. I'm so glad you exist and that people like you uh, are out there uh, just helping people that are, you know, struggling and uh, particularly in these communities that maybe are a little bit harder to reach uh, for someone who doesn't, you know, have the experience of having, you know, gone through what you've gone through. Well, you know trauma I mean? isn't comparable either. And that, that does yeah. frustrate me a little bit. It's like, you know, oh, you're an Air Force veteran. Oh, so, you know, my trauma of the death of my mother isn't, isn't war. And it's like, you're right. Right. But to right. you, it changed your life. It changed your right. trajectory. So it, it's an important trauma to process, right? Because it affected you negatively. And now you've moved over here, right? You were going down lane A and now you're over here on lane B, you know? So mm -hmm. that's the thing. Trauma is never comparable and it should never be compared. And anyway, mm -hmm. so I have a non, uh, well, I have yeah. a for-profit. Um, I have a counseling business. It's called Semper Modus LLC. So that's the website is um, S-E-M-P-E-R-M-O-T-I-S-L-L-C. It means always on the move or always motivated because I'm never home. I do everything virtually because I'm always <laughs> gone and I love it. I love to go bye-bye. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a big part of it. But the other thing is, you know, I have clinicians strategically placed in different states. So those individuals who want to be seen face-to-face -face mm. can be seen. Yeah. And they all have different uh, certifications, different modalities, different ways that they practice. And they're pretty yeah. good. So yeah. Sounds like how we're building church right now. We do a lot of stuff online and then we're planting in areas where we've got people because they so we can have face to face stuff, just extending the community. And uh, I love that. Well, cool. I appreciate you and thank you for having me on. And I'm looking forward to yes. the next one. And yeah, I love we'll do it again soon. Proceeds, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll do it again soon. Thanks, Dr. Janelle Royster. Appreciate you so much. Uh, thanks, everybody for taking the time to check out this episode. Appreciate you guys as well. Be blessed and uh, see you next time.